Welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. We began this series looking at the three overarching themes in Scripture, namely Exodus, Exile, and Emmanuel. This thematic introduction leads us to the next section called Ancient Words. Uh, As promised, we'll be taking our Bibles apart, looking at original languages, sources, translations, and the various tools we can use to understand the Bible. Wanting to get started quickly, I've decided to commission a new translation of the Bible, one that I'm going to call the NRPV, the New Revised Podcast Version. Of course, we don't have time to translate the entire Bible, so I'm going to start you off with Mark chapter 1, verse 22. And in order to do this, we're going to need something called a Greek-English interlinear New Testament. Basically, an interlinear is a side-by-side list of words translated from the Greek, the original language of the New Testament. I'm saying side-by-side list rather than translation, because it's actually a bit of a word salad, as you will see in a moment. So here is the word list you get when you translate all those Greek words into English. And... They were astonished at the teaching of him. He was for teaching them as authority, having and not as the scribes. If you're driving, you might want to leave this for later. If you're not driving, this would be the moment to pause and do a quick translation. You can uh, find this word list on the website uh, under episode three by visiting p2.ca slash podcast. Another option is to let the experts try their hand at this translation business. Uh, What you will clearly see as I share some examples from popular translations is that there is no correct answer. So here's some examples. They were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one who had real authority, quite unlike the teacher's of religious law. That's the New Living Translation. And they were astounded at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority, not as the scribes. That's the King James Version. Everyone was amazed at his teaching. He taught them with authority, not like the teachers of the law of Moses. That's the contemporary English version. They were surprised at his teaching, so forthright, so confident, not quibbling and quoting like the religious scholars. Uh, That's from the message. Uh, They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That's the new revised standard version. I think what stands out here is the shift from what seems to be a fairly literal process to something more creative. At first, the task seems to be just to smooth out a list of words into something readable, but clearly more is going on. Part of the reason for the alphabet soup of translations is time, things get dated, uh, and emerging needs, from readability to more accuracy to even adding contemporary words and phrases to give the reader a little jolt. So, our first question for discussion, what is your preferred translation and why? Have you tried others? 
That was three questions, so take a moment and discuss if you wish. The various translations I have cited, New Living Translation, King James Version, Contemporary English Version, The Message, and the Revised Standard Version, all find their beginning either directly or indirectly in the original languages of the Bible. The Old Testament was written in ancient Hebrew, tiny sections were written in Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. It is important to remember that the Old Testament was the Bible that Jesus read and quoted and that it existed in more or less its present form in the time of the early church. There were strands of the story being recorded as early as the 12th century BCE. The entire text of the Old Testament took nearly a thousand years to develop, and it represents the work of many authors that mostly remain anonymous to us. The New Testament, by contrast, was written over a period of about 150 years. It's the work of several authors, many of whom we can identify by name. St. Paul is the author of nearly a third of the New Testament, while traditional authorship is recorded for the Gospels and other parts of the text. It's important to remember that the line between the original authors and the present Bible is a long and circuitous one. In the case of the New Testament, it begins with Greek source material found in books and fragments of books, sometimes just a few lines of text. The first fragments appear at the end of the first century, end of the second century, around the time the last writings are believed to have been completed. Only in the third century do we see the complete Gospels, and finally in the fourth century we see a complete New Testament. If you recall the children's game that involves whispering a message at one end of the line of kids and discovering a completely different message at the other, you'll understand the problem with translating the Bible. Each successive version was hand-copied from a previous version, including accumulated errors and edits and adding new ones. The task of the Bible scholar is to try to determine the most reliable manuscript and translate from it. The other issue to bear in mind is the issue of canon. The canon means the books of the Bible deemed authoritative by the early church. There are a few books that were excluded by the early church, some which still exist and some which have been lost in time. The Gospel of Thomas is perhaps the most famous of the non-canonical Gospels and is made up of 114 sayings of Jesus with virtually no narrative content. Others include the secret Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Hebrews, and the Gospel of Peter. Some of these are fragments, some are more complete, and all of them were rejected by the early church fathers as appropriate material to include in the Bible. So so what do you think of this idea of canon? Do these surplus books undermine your confidence in the Bible or strengthen your sense of its authority? Maybe uh, pause for a moment if you wish. I want to listen to a couple of passages as we move into the next part of our study today. I'm reading from Genesis 1. In the beginning, 
when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God said that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And now reading from Genesis 2. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth, there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice that we're reading two distinct versions of the creation of the heavens and earth. In Genesis 1, we get five days of creating, and finally humans appear on day 6. In Genesis 2, it's humans first, or nearly first, before plants, trees, creatures, and so on. Call it a contradiction in the text, one that cannot be explained away if you regard the text as without error. And while this contradiction is readily obvious to even the most casual of readers, it was not a topic of discussion until the beginning of the 19th century. When universities did begin to look at the text in new ways, starting in Germany, they developed a discipline that we commonly call Bible criticism. It takes several forms, and we will look at some in greater depth moving forward. To begin, however, we can use our Genesis contradiction to look at one of the earliest forms of criticism called source criticism. Scholars have deconstructed the first five books of the Bible and discovered that the text is an interweaving of at least three sources. Rather than present three separate versions of the same story, the editors, likely in ancient Babylon, decided to create a single edition and merge the stories. This explains how you get one version of the creation story in chapter 1, and you get a different telling in chapter 2. Both stories have something important to say, and the Bible would be diminished without one or the other. Do you agree? How would you deal with these two threads? Take a moment to discuss if you wish. Continuing with source criticism, let's shift to the New Testament and consider something scholars call the two-source hypothesis. The hypothesis gives us an approximate timeline and a leading theory on how the Gospels developed. The problem, of course, is that there is material common to Matthew, Mark, and Luke— known together as the Synoptic Gospels, as well as material that's unique to each. Much of Mark appears in Matthew and Luke, 
Well, none of the material unique to these two Gospels appears in Mark. This would suggest that Mark is an earlier source for Matthew and Luke. There's also material common to Matthew and Luke that does not come from Mark, and this unknown source has been labeled Q. If you Google Q source and click the Images tab, you'll see lots of versions of the same chart illustrating the theory. I've included one on my website. You'll notice that I haven't mentioned the Gospel of John here, and that's because it is viewed differently from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's important enough that we'll put John in the spotlight in section 4. So we have books and fragments that make up the Bible, carefully analyzed to create an authoritative manuscript in the original languages. What happens next? Once scholars have settled on an original language text, they can begin the work of translating the Bible into the vernacular, a very fancy word for the local language we speak. One of the earliest translations, the Vulgate translation of St. Jerome, translated the Old and New Testaments into Latin. By the time of the Reformation, the late 15th, early 16th centuries, there was considerable effort being put into creating a Bible in English, first by scholars such as Wycliffe, and eventually by the King James translators who created the authorized version in 1611. The King James version remained the standard English language text until British scholars published the revised version of the Bible in the 1880s. Following this, American scholars created the American Standard Version, 1901, which eventually gave way to the Revised Standard Version of 1952, and finally the new Revised Standard Version of 1989. There are, of course, hundreds of translations, and each new version tries to utilize the latest scholarship the newest manuscripts, or some alternate aim, uh, such as the use of gender-neutral language, for example. The, the Bibles I'm going to highlight now uh, are some of the most common and will provide a good cross-section of the what's and why's of biblical translations. The New Revised Standard Version is considered the most accurate translation of the Bible, using the most recently discovered and authenticated manuscripts. The downside is that the translation can seem rather wooden at times, bound as it is to the desire to provide the most technically accurate translation. The Contemporary English Version, 1995, was published by the American Bible Society and also promoted for use by the Canadian Bible Society. It's a translation from the original languages with the expressed purpose of conveying the meaning of the text rather than the literal translation. They also have written the text with special attention to ease of reading aloud. The New Living Translation, 1996, is similar to the CEV, but introduces the concept of functional equivalence, which means translating ideas from the original language rather than merely words and phrases. And finally, the, the Living Bible, 1971, is a popular paraphrase of the Bible 
uh, written in everyday language, in this case by a single author, using other Bibles in English as the source material. So my question, have you read any of these, uh, and do you have a preferred version? You can pause if you wish. Next, I'm going to lead you through a virtual show-and-tell and give you a snapshot of the types of study material available to students of the Bible. First uh, are the Bible in original languages, Hebrew and Greek, and a, a Greek-English dictionary. These are less helpful to lay people without first taking a course of study in the original languages. Um, here, here's a fun fact. I'm old enough that my theological college required a full year of both Greek and Hebrew. I survived the experience, but just barely. An interlinear Bible, which we met at the beginning of this episode, is a good intermediate step between original text and the English language, as it gives the dictionary definition of each of the words in the original text and allows us to play with the word order and ponder the choices other translators have made. Bible Dictionary is a helpful tool to quickly look up people, places, and things we find in the text and discover more about them and their relationship to the rest of the story. In our sample verse, for example, it would be a handy tool for discovering more about scribes, authority, or the law of Moses. Each of these may have an article in the Bible Dictionary. A concordance is a useful way to find things in the Bible if you only have a word or a fragment of a verse in your mind. If I wanted to talk about scribes in a study or a sermon, I could use a concordance to find every reference to them in the Bible. Gospel parallels are helpful to find places where passages in either Matthew, Mark, or Luke appear in the others. Uh, Mark uh, one twenty one can also be found in the 7th chapter of Matthew and in the 4th chapter of Luke, just as an example. A uh, study Bible is an annotated version of the Bible that alternates between text and explanation, looking at overall themes and interpretive material. Bible introductions uh, go a step further still, uh, providing an overview of all the topics related to the scriptures in a single volume. I should note that the internet has made my very expensive collection of study material mostly redundant. Uh, Biblehub.com, to give you one example, basically replaces all the books that I mentioned. And it's all hyperlinked, of course, so uh, what took considerable time searching can now be revealed in a matter of seconds. I should mention uh, that uh, Bible commentaries can be found on this and many similar sites, but they tend to be very outdated, uh, usually owing to copyright issues, or uh, overly confessional, meaning they represent a particular point of view alone. I'm not saying you should avoid them. I'm simply saying you should find out the source of the commentary before you accept everything that's written. So we're in the final stretch of this section, and we're going to shift to something that still troubles many readers. Uh, we'll call it the problem with Paul. I'm going to read first from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, Philippians uh, 4 now. Uh, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge uh, Euodia and I urge uh, Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the Book of Life. As contradictions go, this one is big. One has Paul insisting that women remain silent, and one has Paul praising the work of various women in the church as they assist him in the work of the gospel. The work of the gospel, of course, is proclamation, to share the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can Paul praise women in one instance and insist they not speak in another? Which represents his view, silent women or women sharing in the work of the gospel? I would suggest the answer lies in all the small greetings and postscripts where Paul mentions women and their contribution to the life of the church. The instruction to remain silent is likely a later insertion, likely by someone in a very male-dominated church in the period when copyists were reproducing the text. Whenever we're faced with contradictions, the task of the reader is to discern the version of the text that is most consistent with our understanding of God's desire, as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. We call this uh, scripture judging scripture, choosing the passage that is most consistent with Jesus' message of compassion and forgiveness. We'll end uh, there for today and look forward to the next episode where uh, we begin to look at literary forms found in scripture. Uh, Once again, I invite you to visit uh, my website, uh, p2.ca slash podcast uh, to find some notes, maybe a link or two, uh, and the readings I shared today. Thank you for joining me.